Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. So, Mark, welcome. Last time we saw each other, I think, was in 2020 at the World Peace Day in Berlin. And it seems... 2019 it was, actually. Was it 2019? Yeah, it seems quite a while ago. I mean, a lot has has happened between then. Obviously, COVID and then uh, Russia's illegal invasion into Ukraine. Mm. And the world um, has changed quite significantly. And I want to come back to that later because there is a feeling that a new cold war is here or coming or it's definitely you know on we're on the doorstep of it um which may change um not only our view of the world but also it may change creativity and music like the first cold war had a very big impact so I, i want to come to that um a bit later but we have a lot of similarities in terms of that we're both British originally. Um, We both up and left and came to Germany. I presume we both got dual citizenship now. Yes. (laughs) And quite happy about it. (laughs) Yeah. And um, we also had that experience of moving and going to another country, which I believe has uh, a great impact on your psyche and changes you to Mm. a certain extent. Um, But I want to start with not particularly like just looking back at your childhood, but I know and I've seen in other shows that you've got pictures of you when you were very young in Manchester. And Mm. I just wondered what goes through your head when you look at a picture of you at a very young age in a different society to where you are now as a different person in a lot of ways Mm. to who you are now. So what do you see when you see a picture of you when you were young? Um... Well, I usually can remember quite a bit about when the situation that the photograph was taken or, or you know, I mean, as a small child, like a sort of seven-year-old or whatever, I was on telly for, there's a, a program which, um, for Granada Television, which was made about our school, St. Mary's in Horton Green. And the kid who's speaking on this program, it's not me, you know. What I mean, it's like, it's like, who's this kid? You know, uh, uh, it's quite weird. Um, but most of the time, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not so nostalgic, really. So I don't kind of like dwell on, on, on the situation. But um, yeah, back then, I think I had a very different vision of what the future was going to be. 
as a very small child, you know, I thought we were going to be like in the Jetsons flying, like riding around in flying cars and stuff like that and have robots serve, serving us. Um, but as, a, as, a, as, a, as I got older, I realised that wasn't the future. And, um, and, I, and I just wanted to see what the rest of the world had to, had to offer, really, or the rest of Europe, at least, you know. And, and so coming to Germany was one thing which was just, it was just out of curiosity more than anything else. And, and when I look at the two, the two sort of me's, you know, it's like the, it was the me that could have gone, gone on to, I could have been a, just a graphic designer working in, a, in, a, in an agency, slogging my guts out for nothing, you know, and, and, and all these horrible people around me kind of like backbiting each other. That's what, what the advertising world seemed to be like for me. Um, and, and, and I was kind of like, I didn't, I didn't want to work in a factory, to be sure, to be honest. You know, I didn't want to work in a steelworks or something like that. So in, in where I grew up, we had it like um, clothing manufacturers and hat producers and stuff like this, and you know, so textiles industry. And I wasn't interested in going into that either. And so, and so that that could have been my future. You know, that could have very well been my future. But I decided to to try something else instead and see what else was on offer. When I look back, I look back at certain aspects of my life during the, I mean, I was, I'm, I think I'm uh, one year younger than you. So we're effectively the same age. So we grew up in the same era. And when I look back, I look back at a period of, of great unhappiness and feeling very distant to mm. everything that was around me. And every bit of music that I liked at that period was about going into another world, like leaving this world and going into another, like liking Bowie as this sort yeah, of yeah. alien from another world and me wanting to leave where I was from to go somewhere else, wherever that would have been. And, and I just wondered whether you, because a lot was happening in your life in, in, in Manchester uh, before you actually left for Germany, you know, the second time yeah. as it were, but a lot was happening in your life. And, um, for me, it was more about escaping my old life. So whenever I sort of look at your story, I look at it and think you had a lot of opportunities in Manchester, but you left those opportunities. And I wonder whether it was a, a feeling of disconnect and you just wanted to get away and discover yourself. I didn't know this at the time. You know, I didn't know that that was a possibility at the time to discover myself because I didn't I didn't think about that. Um, you know, growing up growing up in 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 miserable Manchester during the seventies was really kind of very trying. You know, and and being as a kid, you know, at school being bullied and stuff like that was was one of these things which kind of like really maybe just want to escape and get away and go somewhere else where I didn't have to deal with that kind of situation. Working in, in Virgin Records in Manchester opened up completely different opportunities, really, because I, I got to see loads of gigs for free and I got loads of records for free and things like that. And I was able to manipulate people's tastes in music by the records that I chose to play them and stuff. But even that was not, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough excitement. It wasn't enough uh, of a challenge. You know, it just it was just an on an everyday ongoing thing, and as uh, you know, the music scene was kind of developing to this punk rock thing in the in the mid seventies. You know, it's exciting and thrilling and stuff. But by nineteen seventy eight, I thought, you know, I'd had enough really. It had become, well, you know, I thought that the the punk idea and the and had kind 
washed itself out and become Samplan Pomoir. And I was like, I didn't really like that. I thought that was that that was kind of like selling itself a little bit too cheaply and a bit too quickly. And so I, I thought I'll go and try, have, a, have a chance and look around elsewhere, really, you know. I mean, there was a nihilism to the to the 70s, obviously, in 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 Britain. The nihilism was uh, a lot to do with the uh, society in terms of that growing up in that era, you did feel that you didn't really have much of a future because it was massive unemployment. <laughs> there was yeah. a, a lot of social unrest and so on and so forth. And yet you go to a city eventually, you go to Berlin, which is a city almost exists in a sort of nihilistic sphere as a sort of island within East Germany, an yeah. island of West Germany within East Germany at that time. Um, when you got to Berlin, how did you initially feel? Was there a fear of being in this new place or was it an, an instant excitement? Oh, it was instant excitement. It wasn't, it was not, not I hadn't, I didn't have any, any fear about Germany because I'd had the opportunity to go to Germany in 1976 and for the first time. And, and I realized like this myth that we'd been told at school and my, that, that my parents believed, you know, from my entire school life was that the Germans were all evil, you know, and that, um, you know, G Germany was not the place where you need to go, you know, to go there and find out that this was completely untrue, just threw everything out of the window, really. It made me question a, a reality that I'd believed in the UK and suddenly, you know, I, I saw the reality that it wasn't true. So, so, so going to Berlin was all, was, was all about excitement, really. It was not about, you know, fear. Not even, you know, where, where it was in the middle of East Germany was kind of like scary, you know, go, having to go to East, through East Germany to get to Berlin was quite scary in its, in its sense, but it was also thrilling as well. It had this kind of like allure to it, which I, I was, this adrenaline feeling that you get from this kind of situation just really addicted, made me addicted to it, really. Yeah. I, I didn't mean fear in terms of Germans. I meant fear in terms of the Cold War. But, I mean, I was, I was my father uh, had a, a German guy that worked for him. So we had uh, a friend in the family who was German. Mm. And... Uh, I think I was lucky in that way. So my perspective in that era, and I know what you're saying, because generally in British society, particularly of that era, um, it was incredibly isolationist and also very held over from the Second World War. Mm. Um, but this island uh, that Berlin was, was an mm. island that sort of uh, became very special because if you wanted to get out of the Bundeswehr, the German army, um, you just had to register that you lived in Berlin and you went and lived in Berlin as a young German. So it meant it attracted lots of young people and the type of young people that went were anti-war, anti-army, probably also a lot of anti-authoritarian people. So you went into this sort of bubble of society which had this energy to it. Um, were you aware of that energy when you first got there and how and and how did you perceive it in terms of where you came from? What were the differences? Well, I had absolutely really not really much of an idea of what Berlin was going to be like at all. You know, I mean, I'd seen it on in in, in portrayed in movies like, you know, the 
spy came from the cold or, you know, it, uh, the funeral in Berlin or something like that. But I had no real kind of idea what it actually looked like or what it was, what it meant. And, you know, Bowie had kind of made, you know, lone heroes here. That was all I really knew. So to uh, arrive in Berlin and then discover that it was, a t- there was a totally different kind of normality here. Now, the next day when I arrived, I went to get some change for the phone to call my mum. <laughs> and I went to this bar on the end of the street and, there were, and it was, the person behind the bar was a transvestite, you know, bright orange hair and a polka dot top. Yes, darling, what do you want? You know, I was like, wow, this is normality. It was complete. It was completely. And I realized at that moment, you know, this, the, the Berlin of kind of like this cabaret image of Berlin was, was real in a certain, in a different way. You know, it was like, it was like, like everybody was accepted and acceptable. And it didn't matter where you came from because look, most of the people here were all washed ups from West Germany. Like you said, you know, they were all draft dodgers and, you know, gay men and pacifists and atom craft nine danker types, you know, and anyone who just didn't want to go and serve in the military were here surrounded by the military, um, protected by the military. And that was kind of like this strange ambiguity. I, I, I was really fascinated by it. Yeah. And, and, and the, fact, the fact that people just kind of accepted you, regardless of where you came from or what your background was, I, th- I thought that was very refreshing. You know? Were you not concerned that you'd left something behind to the extent, you know, you were in the frantic elevators, which was with uh, an, the early band with Mick Hucknall. Yeah. Uh, you had... Uh, contact to Tony Wilson, which I know sort of helped you out in terms of uh, your uh, being initial being in Berlin, um, Ian Curtis. So your your connections were incredibly strong, probably in terms of the future rather than in terms of that time at that moment in time. But yeah. were you when were you aware that you'd actually left something behind, and did that have an impact on you at all? Well, I never got that feeling, to be honest. I wasn't, I never thought I'd left something behind because, you know, Rob Gretton was really enthusiastic when, when I said I was going to Germany because I think he obviously thought, oh, is somebody going to be actually in the country? He'll be able to maybe help us get a gig or something like that. So, so, and Ian was fascinated by the idea that I was going to Berlin as well. So it was, I, di- I didn't feel I was being discouraged. Only Mick was a bit discouraging. You know, he was, he was a bit upset that I was leaving the band to go to, to, you know, enemy territory, so to speak. But um, everybody kind of accepted it because they realised that I wasn't happy in, in Manchester, and it wasn't. And I didn't. I didn't myself. I didn't see a future for myself because, you know, the the people from Virgin Records that was working in the Virgin small Virgin Records shop in Manchester, they they came to me and said, "Yes, we're going to be opening up this brand new mega store." And I was like, "What's a mega store?" They went, well, it's like a supermarket for records. And I just had this idea, you know, this vision of like me, you know, people walking around with shopping trolleys, you know, putting Fleetwood Mac and Re- Eagles records in it. And I was like, I don't want to work in a supermarket. I might as well work in Tesco's. I'm not, I don't want to do that. And so, so to actually leave and uproot was something quite kind of easy, really, in a sense. I didn't feel like I was leaving anything behind. And, and, and when I got here and then eventually, when I got here, there wasn't any kind of scene, so to speak. You know, it wasn't really kind of like, punk rock central in berlin you know it was there was one small place called punk house in near adenauer platz that had like a, it was like punk, a punk cafe kind of thing but other than that there was nothing much really going on here it was still kind of like everyone was still into deep purple and pink floyd and it was like okay 
you know, it's a, it's a different scene, a different feeling. But by 1980, everything had changed. It had become this, it had developed its own kind of new wave scene, which was completely different to the scene that I'd experienced in Manchester. You know, like being in, being in Manchester, people, you know, they formed bands so they could escape from the misery of Manchester, you know, like hopefully somebody might discover them. And with their dough money, they bought guitars and thrashed out kind of like, you know, politically themed songs and stuff about living in life in the UK at that period in time. But in Berlin, everybody had already escaped. So there was no real reason for them to kind of do that. So they, so they just invented it themselves. They invented their own version of what they thought was a was a new wave really, and I thought I thought that was really exciting. It was much more, much much more thrilling and different than 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 this um, desire to become a pop star, which was I thought everybody wanted to be in, in in the UK. Everyone wanted to be on the top of the on top of the pops, you know. What I feel of that era in in Berlin, it was almost a reflection of the punk era in Britain, where it was uh, it was more um, easy to just make music with your friends and do what you wanted to do without any feeling you were trying to be successful or you were trying to actually create create something um, for a career or something like that. It was just about having fun and developing stuff. Yeah, um, being arty, being arty, you know, like because it was very artistic, everything. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like the music wasn't geared towards being a pop song and being on the radio or anything like that the music was made as a as a form of expression as, a, as an art form and when you look at bands like you know the turtle or or introduction to neubauten and malaria three kind of like mainstays of that of that era you know their music has stood the test of time because it doesn't kind of fall into any conformity of such you know like like, like you know it's it's new and different but it's still new and different I mean, these are all, all uh, people that you were very closely in, in, involved in. Um, the, I just want, I'll, I'll come to that in a second, but I just want to get a feeling of this, uh, whether there was some form of nihilistic uh, attitude in Berlin at that time, and whether that was a reflection of, you know, the 80s, the early 80s were the height of the Cold War. Um, and whether this nihilistic attitude, if it existed, was a reflection of that, because it was really, and Berlin has always been sort of party till you drop type idea. It's, <laughs> you know, there's never been a limit on what you can do in Berlin. Well, well the, the thing that was the, the, the key, the key actually to the city, and still is the key to the city, is the fact that Berlin is open 24 hours a day and that you could drink from dusk till dawn every day, you know, um, and being open 24 hours a day just opened itself to, to being able to party all day and all night and all day and all night until you dropped. Um, and, the, and the feeling of this city, that, which, was, which was east and west, it was capitalism versus communism in one place. It was, you know, eastern army versus western armies, you know, like in one place. Uh, you know, people never talked about, Really, the, the normal everyday person on the street never really talked about, you know, the Third World War, that it would happen in Berlin. But in, in films and in books, it was always portrayed as being the place where a Third World War would kick off between the forces of East and West on the border of East Berlin and West Berlin. 
I, I never felt like that once I got here. I thought I felt very, very safe here. Although my my German friends, they, they were from West Germany, they they all thought it was going to end here. You know, this was the place where it was all going to kick off and we'd all die, and it could all happen tomorrow. So sod it let's do what we want you know let's just do everything we want to do and do it now because like next week it might all be over and that was the attitude that everybody took and i just went with that because it sounded quite interesting <laughs> you know it sounded yeah right well, of course we could all die tomorrow so yeah. how connected were west germans in berlin to east germans in berlin because even in uh, an earlier period you could go and visit couldn't you you could go over and and mm. take a look and you know you did many times yes i did yeah uh, my, my, my friends here my west german friends and who had all kind of washed up in berlin almost hardly any of them went went to east berlin you know they, it, germans only went to east berlin if they had relatives usually or if they had to go to say a concentration camp with the school or something like that they don't, then they'd go to east berlin but Generally, you know, they, they only ever went once in their life as school kids usually and hated it and then came back and had nothing positive to say about East Berlin. Um, whereas I, you know, having no family members in, in East Germany, you know, looked at it with different eyes. And so, so I went over there with a completely different viewpoint of what East Germany and what East Germans were like. And I found it quite fascinating because it was like they've, you know, you just meet someone in a cafe and just start chatting to them. And they're fascinated because you're from England and it's like, they're never, ever going to meet someone from England just on, just by chance, you know, they see soldiers walking around shopping, but they're not going to speak to them because they're not allowed to speak to them, but to sit in a cafe and speak to someone, have this opportunity to find out what's it like, what's the West really like, you know, um, that was quite, quite thrilling for me. It was like interesting because, because, because the, these people had no information. It wasn't like today where you've got the internet, you know, they had, they had no information. They could only watch what was happening on West German television. And that was the only insight into the, into the West. And, and, you know, they had a, they had dreams and desires, you know, everyone you met always wanted, no, I'd love to go to Paris and see Paris. I'd love to go to Italy and see Rome, you know, I'd love to go to London, you know, they, they had these dreams, but they knew that these dreams were never, ever going to be fulfilled. And what I were their ideas was, of your life? What were their ideas of what sort of life you must have come from? Oh, they all thought I lived in a mansion. They all thought I lived in a mansion and had a Rolls Royce. You know what I mean? It was like they all thought I lived in a luxury in a luxury apartment and everything was fantastic and I had you know like everything that I wanted and desired and I could travel wherever I liked. And I tried to explain to them, like, you can only travel to places if you've got bloody money. You know, I tried to explain to them my flat was a 22 square meter hovel in the back half of a house with an outside toilet and no shower. You know, they had no idea about, you know, that, that, that they, well, they didn't believe me. They didn't, they didn't believe me at all. You know, they thought I lived in a mansion. Was the first time you went to, to East Berlin to the May Day uh, official parade or was that did that come later was that oh that was later that was much later the May Day okay. parade was much 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 later um that was 82 I was you know I'd, I'd arrived in 1978 and and I like after being here for three days I went to East Berlin it was like I, I trying to find I was trying to find out how to get to East Berlin no no one knew how to go to East Berlin because they'd never been there so they, they kept telling me oh you can't go you can't go and then by chance I just like went, I went to Checkpoint Charlie and went and, and discovered I could just walk over and I went and it was fascinating it was like it was like 
science fiction come real. You know, it's like being beamed down into another planet that resembled our planet, but which was totally different <laughs> with, you know, loads of soldiers everywhere. And it was like going back to the fifties in a strange, weird way. You know, it's like, it's like fifties world in a certain aspect, you know, like everyone was in uniform, every single person, you know, the shopkeepers, the soldiers, everybody, bus drivers, everybody. And, um, yeah, it was just it was just a fascinating kind of a insight into this kind of easty world, and it didn't feel threatening in any way. I felt quite quite relaxed there. You know, there was no advertising, there were hardly any cars, and the people kind of looked similar. They, well, you know, like I, I'd, I'd imagined everyone to look grey and miserable, but they looked kind of happy. And and I went to Alexander Platz. It was a beautiful sunny day, and it was like you know, fountains and kids playing and grannies you know, sitting in the park and stuff. And it was just very peaceful. And I thought, I like it here. It's quite that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live there, you know, but I, but I thought I'd go there and check it out a bit more. And I, and I found out that the, this place where I went to have my dinner in, which was like, it was like school dinners. Yeah, it, was like, it was like these dinner ladies ladling out slops for these people, you know, for the lunch. That I discovered that, that in the evening, that's a discotheque. So, so I waited until the evening to around about eight o'clock and then I went back to Alexander Platz under the TV tower. I went to this discotheque, SB Disco, which was just really provisional. It was like some, you know, bloke with two cassette players, you know, playing music and car headlamps as lights, the lights, you know, it was very, it was very, very simple. But, but you know, it was like, it was like an insight into this kind of like East German life. And so I went there like really a lot. How did you actually move into... Uh, being involved in the music scene and making music in in Berlin? Well, it was never an intention to actually be in a band. After being in the Frantic Elevators, I thought I don't want to do it anymore, really. Um, and and just coming here, you know, Mick and, and, and Rob Gretton, they're both like, oh, yeah, now you're there. Maybe you can get some gigs in, in Berlin. <laughs> you're obviously going to be going out, you know. So, so, so it was like, it was just that connection. It was like, you know, Possibly there's an, there's an opportunity maybe, but you know, Robert Senders, when they started factory, they started, started sending me factory records. So they already started, it's already sent me the, the ideal for living 12 inch that it had repressed, you know, like, can you send that to the radio stations and maybe we'll get some, some, some coverage of some kind. No, no one was interested at all. You know, no one was interested in this miserable band from Manchester. And so, so it just it's just like just like floundered really, and and going out. I think I think a lot of people thought because I worked for Factory in their eyes, they had this vision of me kind of working for this for this fantastic record company. They had no idea of the, the chaos behind this record company. Um, they, you know, they, they obviously thought that maybe I was their stepping stone to a, to a, getting a record deal or whatever. So I was embraced and accepted everywhere in all the bars and all the clubs and everything. And I got. And for free, and I never paid for a drink ever. And it was kind of, you know, quite nice. I wasn't, I wasn't going to complain to that. Um, and then it, being drunk one night, you know, like it was, there was the last, the last night of excess. It was this club in Schoenberg, um, near the near the Barn, near Barn of Zoo, and it was like this. It was their last night. It was kind of like three nights of of, of the club, and uh, one of the the promoter came to me and said, oh, you've, you know, I know you've got a guitar, you know, like could, a band's, they've decided they can't play. So could you, could you go home and get your guitar and fill in? And being very drunk and drugged at the time, I just kind of, yeah, of course, and went home and got my guitar and, and did this impromptu set with uh, Adrian Wright from the Human League and, an, and another friend from America. And it was, it was pretty dreadful. And, um, and I thought, I'll never do that again. 
and then I went to this L36 a couple of months later and uh, and it was saying, oh, can you, can you, can you fill in for, for, for this band that, that, that are not going to play? And I was like, okay. And, and it was with Christoph Hahn, who plays for the, was the guitarist of the Swans. And it's like, yes, we'll, we'll form a band. So we formed this band, did this one gig, never again. We'll never do that ever again. And then, oh, can you do it? Can you do it on the 17th of June? And I was like, I don't have a band. And I agreed because I was drunk and drugged at the time, you know. So I agreed foolishly. And, uh, and then I realized the next day, oh, what have I done? And so I asked a, another expat friend who'd been washed up here, this guy called Alistair, who I knew. Um, I said, hey, Alistair, can you, can you sing? And he's like, Strangers in the Night. Went, oh, brilliant, we've got a gig next Wednesday. Come round to our house and I'll show you how to play guitar. And so he came round to my flat and we, we, made, we wrote a couple of songs in, in, my, in my room, you know, for, for, for this gig. And then we did this gig and we thought, we'll never, ever do that ever again. It was a complete disaster, right? A total, total nightmare. We were so we'd been we'd been waiting for a sound check all afternoon in the in Franken in the pub across from SL thirty six, yeah, and we got completely plastered by this point. We came to get on the stage and all our guitars had gone out of tune in the meantime, and we thought we're never going to do that again. And and the minute we got off stage, this girl who we knew, Elizabeth, who had a record label called Monogam, she released like P.I.N.T.E. and Neubaut and, and stuff. She comes running up, she goes, "Oh, that was brilliant! I want to make a record with you." And it kind of just spiraled out of control from that point on. I mean, Berlin was a sort of, um, I don't know whether this is a really positive way of saying it, but it feels like the music scene was almost like a swinging scene, you know, like everyone in every band played it with was, everyone in everyone else's band. It was, it was, it was almost <laughs> like that, yeah. It was, it was like, well, there weren't, there weren't that many people in this scene. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like there were like thousands and thousands of people involved. It was like the scene was a hand, literally a handful of people. And it's like whoever you whoever you got pissed with the night before kind of <laughs> ended up being in their band for an, for a gig, you know, and it, and it, that, that kept it kind of vibrant and 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 ever developing, you know. Everybody like literally everybody played at least once in somebody else's band almost, or, or worked with them in some capacity, you know. Like I did the sound for Noe Bolton for a couple of gigs, like Documenta and stuff, and 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 you know, and I was the sound engineer for Malaria, and you know, and all these different different things that just kind of just all happened together because we we're just a very, very small scene. That's really the reason why. So, how important was that period of of your life? in terms of developing the skills that you're able to use today? Well, I, felt, I, think, I think, you know, like I've kind of done virtually every job there possibly is in the music business up at that point, you know, like I've worked in a record shop, I've been in a band, you know, um, I've become the sound engineer and the manager and, you know, I've done all these different things and, and, and I've got an insight into how the business on that side on each side of these like sections how they all worked and 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 i kind of like thought i don't want it to be like that i don't want it to be like that you know and and i never kind of had any aspirations to be a pop star or anything like that that was like you know my mates were all pop stars you know they'd all be they'd all attained kind of like notoriety you know we've been on top of the pops and stuff like that and that's fine I was, I'm, I'm happy with that you know that they, that they managed they became successful I was really proud of my friends that they'd attained that you know they'd stuck with it and become you know stars but that wasn't really the thing that I was chasing 
you know, I didn't want that wasn't really important for me. I didn't make music really to 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 become famous. You know, I made music because I I enjoyed making music. I like to be creative. Um, and the, and and the, all these all these kind of sections really kind of just like led me to a point um, whereby, you know, like I've been inspired by people like Daniel Miller and by Tony Wilson, and their and their approach towards like running a record label and signing bands and the kind of bands that they wanted to have on the label and stuff like that. I've been really inspired by that. I've been inspired by Malcolm Garrett and, and, and Peter Saville and the, and the design of the, of the artwork of record covers and things. So, so, you know, having known these people, I kind of brought that to myself here in Berlin and kind of used the same, the same kind of attitude and the same kind of like vision or whatever at the point when I actually come to um, forming my own record label in uh, 1990. Um, and, then, and, and then it was then I took on a different role within this music business. I became the record label owner stroke manager, which I actually didn't like the idea of because I thought, you know, the people who kind of run these record labels usually complete the uh, self-centered narcissists or whatever. And I, and I didn't really want to have that sort of image really um and uh, so i try i try to run my label in, in in a more kind of sort of a, a mixture of tony wilson and, and daniel miller really just want to um, go back a bit again because obviously we're going to come to uh, um you know this era a little bit later but you mentioned the fact that you were a, a bridge to a certain extent but you were a bridge in a sense both ways weren't you you were you were a bridge of the culture between uh, Britain and Germany, not just for mm. factory artists in Berlin, mm. but and yeah. and you became a bridge for uh, German artists in in essence to to Britain. And I think this was particularly highlighted when you eventually uh, did that piece for the Tube when you worked mm. for Mal Malcolm Geary. How did they approach you, and why uh, did they come to you? What was that particular reason um it's all chris bond's fault chris bond who was bieber cop who wrote for the enemy they they, they asked him you know because he'd written about like neubauten and these kind of like the berlin krankheit music scene you know he'd written about this in the enemy and so they asked him you know if he would do this program the tube and he politely declined and suggested that they contact me because i'm the brit living in berlin and so that's exactly what they did. They contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to help them put a program together for the tube. Now, it really meant, would you do this program for us? Because I ended up doing everything for them. Yeah. Pre preparing everything, getting all the equipment, getting all the permission, which was a, night a nightmare, you know, getting, getting the permission from the U S forces from British forces yeah, to, to be able to film in their sectors you couldn't just go on the street with a camera and film willy-nilly you couldn't just get you know have, do an interview on the street willy-nilly you had to get permission to be able to stand on the street and do a, an interview no matter what so i got all this, inf this 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 permission and i got the the equipment and everything and then then they came to berlin and we, we did this program but at the same time i'm saying to them we if we do this program we can't just do west berlin because Berlin is not just West Berlin. Berlin is also East Berlin as well. And they were like, well, how are we going to do that? 
you know, it's, it's, it, it was it just that no one had ever done anything like it. No, no one had even attempted to do anything like it. And so they were completely like, do you think you can pull this off? You know, and well, so I'll go, I'll find out, you know, from, I'll find a band. They wanted a, they wanted a punk band. I'm like, so I tried to explain to them, well, punk doesn't officially exist in the GDR. The, 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 so if you're a punk in the GDR, you go to prison, basically. So they're not going to, you know, fall head over heels to get a punk band on British television because that doesn't represent what East Germany is trying to represent. You know, they want to have, you know, nice clean cut kids, you know, showing how nice East Germany is. So, so, so I said, we'll have to try and find something else. And I, by chance, found this band walking down the street, literally, you know, um, they were called Jessica. And they'd never, they, they didn't have any permission at all to even own instruments, let alone play in front of an audience, but they looked the part and their music was kind of like, like the police. And so it was like, it was like safe, you know? And so I managed to talk the authorities into putting this unknown band who were not registered with them onto British television. And, um, that point you know these germans kind of they, they were only interested in getting the western currency off us really they they, they, they cost a fortune cost granada time t's television no, it was cost them a fortune to put this to do put this program in east berlin together probably double what west berlin cost but uh we come to this point where the east germans suddenly realized like a week before we're about to air the, the program that they had to they had to put Jessica on the telly in East Germany first, so they could say that they had discovered them because they, they couldn't let us as Brits put this East German band on TV and say we discovered them. But in reality, that's what happened. We you know discovered this band and put them on, and it was like it it changed their lives in East Germany. It also changed the way the East Germans thought. You know, the authorities thought, I think, and and it, and it it was a bit of like a bit of a thawing of the cold war at that moment, you know, like, like we thought we were able to bring East and West together through music. And that was something which was, I thought was really, you know, really important. You know, the fact that we'd done this, we'd managed to pull it off, you know, that I thought that was really important. Hey y'all. I'm Kiki Palmer. I'm an actress, a singer, an entrepreneur, and a Virgo, just to name a few. I'm proud to introduce you to the Baby This Is Kiki Palmer podcast, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm putting my friends, family, and some of the dopest experts in the hot seat to ask them the questions that have been burning in my mind. What happened to sitcoms? It's OnlyFans, only that. I want to know, so I asked my mom about it. On Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, no topic is off limits. Listen to Baby This Is Kiki Palmer, exclusively on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app now. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. As a viewer back then, I remember seeing that and I was absolutely enthralled and fascinated because mm. it was this thing that you never knew and you'd never seen before. So I think that was a phenomenal thing. I mean, one thing that in, in essence, in a very minor way connects us, I used to get audiences for the tube 
from Malcolm Geary used to ask me to go to nightclubs and get the most fashionable people, organize a bus and drive up there for five hours <laughs> from London, yeah. it was hell. So they could be in the audience to make it look a bit cooler. That was the idea. Anyhow, that was my connection to the tube, not as fundamentally interesting and fascinating and groundbreaking as yours, for sure. Um, the In that period, was it was it before that period that you organised that gig for the Die Tortenhausen in the church in East Berlin? It was just a couple of months before, yeah. I, I'd like that. That was it. And the Tortenhausen concert, the first one, was in March of '83. Now, I played a secret gig in just outside of Prague in 1982, and so I realised it's possible to, you know go against the communist kind of like restrictions of bands coming to coming over and playing. It was, it was very difficult to, to, to actually organize, but it, it, you know, cause you had to get guitars and basses and drums and things. But um, the, 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 cause no, it, it, you know, people don't really realize that it was really difficult to buy these instruments. You couldn't just go into, into a music shop and buy yourself a drum kit and, and, or a guitar and an amplifier and start thrashing out songs because these things were unavailable in, in East Germany. You could buy an acoustic guitar. You know, you could sit in, in front of a campfire and sing, you know, Bob Dylan, but you couldn't go into a shop and buy an, an electric guitar and, and, you know, impersonate the Velvet Underground. You know, it was like, it was like these things weren't available. To, to own these things, you had to have a, a have a shine, you know, a piece of paper which was state state approval that you could 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 play and you're proficient enough to to, to own an electric guitar. And then what were your lyrics about? What you know? What's there were all these controls and all these things that the kind of restrictions that stopped you from being a musician. Really, you know, they put as many obstacles in place as possible. And it was only the ones that kind of stuck at it and went to university and studied music and that you could actually read music and you're proficiently at playing and stuff like that. These were the ones who got the record contracts in the end. You know, like a punk band playing in the cellar, they're not going to get permission from the state, you know. And so, 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 and it was the same throughout the whole of the communist bloc. It wasn't just, you know, reserved for, for East Germany. Um, so when, in it, when I went to do this, this this illegal concert in Prague, I realised we we got around this these obstacles, yeah. And my idea was to play with my band, the Unbekannten, um, in East Berlin, but we had tapes and synthesizers and drum machines, and um, and no one in East Berlin had a drum machine or a synthesizer. You know, none of my friends certainly not. You know, and so so it was like, well, we have to change. We have to think of something else. And as I was on tour with the Toten Hosen, I just put it to them. I said, well, you know, I've been smuggling your cassettes into East Berlin for the past year. So, you know, like maybe you could do it. We're, all, we're going to be in Berlin. We can go take you over to East Berlin and do a gig. And uh, would you be into that? And they were like, yeah. They never gave it a moment's thought really, like what, 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 how difficult it would be. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, I said to my two, two friends I had in East Berlin, I asked them, you know, would you be interested in, in doing this? Because I'd discovered, meanwhile, that in East Germany, in East Berlin, they had these things in the church called the, a blues mass, which was basically, you know, some guy with an electric guitar playing Bob Dylan songs, you know? And I was like, oh, maybe I could play with my band. But then it became the Totenhausen. And I said to these girls, you know, like, if we can do this gig, you know, ask the, ask the priest if we can do the gig here. But if we do it, you'll, you know, we get caught. I'll get kicked out of East Berlin 
or I'll get kicked out of East Germany and I'll, and I'll never be able to come to East Berlin again. But for you, your lives will change forever. You know, you'll be, you'll be put in prison and, you know, with no idea what could happen to you. You know, would you, you have to think about it, whether you really want to do this or not. And they waited for like five seconds and went, yeah, we want to do it. And at the time I was, okay, are you sure? Because um, I, I knew how dangerous it was for them, you know. And it was sort of difficult, you know, organizing something totally secret. You can only invite 30 people. I said, like, only 30 people. Don't invite anymore. I wanted it to be 30 because I wanted it to be like the Sex Pistols gig in Manchester. You know, I wanted to have it, hope, hoped it would have that kind of impact. And so I selected 30 people, you know. So you, you have to choose your most trusted friends. Don't invite anyone you were a bit suspicious of. And then we did this gig and, it, and we pulled it off, you know, and... At the time, you know, like we had, I had, I had no real idea at the time that no one had ever done this before, just as I'd no, no idea in, in Prague that no one from the West as a punk or a new wave person or whatever had come over and done a gig illegally. Yeah, they had like Boney M on the telly and stuff like that. They'd seen Western bands on the telly in Eastern countries, but to actually do something like, which was completely under the radar, no one, no one had ever actually done that. And I don't, only realised later on in East Berlin that no one had ever actually done this before. Um, when pe people kind of in East Germany didn't believe it, it was like, you know, how can this be? How could anyone dare to do this? And this was on both sides of the, of the fence. You know, the, the East German authorities, like when they found out, they were like, how did this happen? Why did we not know? And, and also amongst the kids of East Germany, they were like, this is, this is quite, quite um, it, revealing, you know, and, and in the church being this kind of sanctuary in Eastern Europe, they saw that I'd use the church as the, as, as the, as the kind of like the, the how do you put it? I mean, it's like, like a sanctuary, if you like, a sanctuary. And so, and so, they, so they, they all went to their local churches and said, can we do a blues mass? <laughs> and then they all ended up like, you know, taking over the churches and becoming, you know, the churches became practice places for punk bands. And the priests, were, they didn't really like the music, but they were happy that the kids were there. And, it, and for these Germans, it also was also, um, they knew where they all were then, you know. So it kind of like they had a bit of a better overview of the punk scene because they had no idea what punk was. It was, it was for these Germans, it was totally threatening punk. It was like, it was uncontrollable. You know, like they could control the, the hippies in the, the Wrangler jeans listening to Deep Purple and stuff. They could, they could control that. They could control anybody else, you know, the people, kid, the pop kids. But these kind of subversive underground kind of like new wavy types, like, you know, goths and, and, and anything that was to do with kind of punk rock that was for them completely like uncontrollable. So they needed to control it immediately. So they had, so they banned it basically. Yeah. So how important do you think then the, the, um, this type of development in, in East Germany or in East Berlin was to actually the development of a reaction against the state because music did play a role in in change how how do you see that role that music played oh it's, I, th I think the, the music was the driving force um the underlying driving force for for change in eastern europe undoubtedly my friends in czech czechoslovakia you know they were all 
real dissidents. They were all part of Václav Havel's Charter 77 movement and and signatories to that, and and also you know people like Plastic People from of the Universe and, and uh, uh, Marek Kopelent and people like this. They were all very very uh, active in Václav Havel's uh, uh, movement, and that was the driving force for change. You know, they want, they wanted to be able to buy Pink Floyd and they wanted to be able to buy Frank Zappa records. They wanted to be able to see these people perform in their country. And that was the kind of like the, the starting point. They wanted to be able to read George Orwell's 1984 as, as a proper book and not as a kind of like photocopied version. You know, these are the things which, which, which drove the people to, to want to, to have changed, not just the fact that they wanted to go to Spain on the holidays, you know, it was, it was like, or, you know, be able to buy frozen peas, you know, it was about, it was about culture, it was the culture thing, cultural thing, you know, films, music, books, art, these were the things which kind of drove the initial, the inertia of the, of the, of the, what the people in East Germany and, and Eastern Europe to want to change. And, um, you know, things like John Peel's radio show, was listened to religiously in the East on shortwave radio. They'd be like recording the shows, you know, they knew so much because of John Peel. And, you know, that was the mu the music was a thing which kind of brought us all together as well. What did you live on at that time? God, well, I worked at, I worked at the, uh, at the loft uh, in, in the eighties from about 82 to 87 or so I worked, I worked in the loft, which was the, a, a venue here. I, I was, I was the doorman, you know, I was, I did, you, call did you work dancer. in the penguin? I, I worked in the penguin in, uh, from about 88. Did right? I not in interview the, you in the penguin one yes, night? Yes, you, you, you <laughs> did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's you, you just did, come yeah. to me. That's amazing. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Me and Westbam. Yes, yes. And it was just before, it was literally like about say, about six weeks before the wall came down. That's what I want to get to because, and that's why I remember it. It was like I was in West Berlin and we'd be hooked up with um, uh, with Westbam and um, and he was showing us around and, and he said that we had to meet you. And so we'd gone to this bar and we'd been filming um, a programme about the wall. And then we went back to London and went into the edit suite. And while I'm in the edit suite, the wall came down. <laughs> so it was like, we've got to change the end of the program. So we had to fly back. Now, in terms of the wall coming down, I remember going back there when the first, the wall came down, there was this euphoria, of course, the politic euphoria as well. But on the other side, there was also um the west germans looking at the east germans in their stonewashed jeans and saying what the hell is going to happen to our city so there was a sense of fear and foreboding but but in a way that sudden that turned very quickly into another sense of excitement and change can you explain that period to me yeah well before we, before we got to the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I actually missed, right, because I wasn't in Berlin. I left the night before. I'd been producing an album in East Berlin for a band called Division, which was like a state, state record label Amiga had invited me. Now, this was all to do with my other subversive activities in, in East Berlin. And they were, the stars, they were curious as to what I was doing. So they kind of like invited me to produce this record so they could watch over me, basically. Now, as I'm making this record, East Germany is starting to fall apart. And at the same time in West Berlin, I was running a bar called The Penguin, 
Yeah, I was working there and, and I was a co-owner of the bar. And, and so I had to keep, you know, in between doing my shifts in, in the studio, I'd go and work in, in the bar as well, you know, a couple of days a week. And um, I had the best of like both worlds, really. I was going to the East, producing this record during the day. And in the evenings, I'd go to the, to the, to the uh, bar and work in the bar. Not every day, but like once a week. And, um, you know, I know I had no kind of real idea that the wall was going to come down. And there, was, there were going to be some changes. But it wasn't like I didn't think, oh, the wall's going to come down. So I had no idea, you know, that this was going to happen. And, and even though people say, yes, well, you could tell that it was going to happen. You couldn't really tell it was going to happen. You knew that there were changes happening because you could see these on the telly, you know, like all these people fleeing, you know, rupturing out of, of, of like East, Eastern Europe into Hungary, you know, and you could see that. Uh, but I had this idea, you know, like East Germany will remain, the wall will still be up, but the political internal politics will change. And so up with some English friends, Dave Rimmer and Trevor Wilson and another guy called John Stokes, we decided we'd go on holiday. When I'd finished producing this album, yeah, we'd go on holiday to Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, Hungary and Romania. And so the night before the wall came down, I finished recording the Division album on the 2nd of November. And on the 7th of November, we decided, you know, right, we can go, we can go now. So we, we left in the night of 8th and 9th of November to go to Poland and missed it, missed the fall of the wall. And, and as we were in Poland, no one said to us, oh, you've heard the Berlin Wall's come down. We knew nothing until we actually got to Hungary like this is days and like 10 days later or something it's like they like long time after the wall had actually come down i discovered by chance that the wall had come down by looking in an old newspaper it said you know east german troops tear down wall i was completely flabbergasted i couldn't believe it and so 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 for this whole kind of like two weeks before you know after the fall of the wall we had no idea what was going on back home you know, we had no news even because we were at, by this point in Romania, Ceausescu's Romania, and there, were, there was no news at all about what was happening in, 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 in the West, you know. And so, so we had no idea. We had no idea. And then we came back, you know, after this, we got kicked out of, East, of, of Romania. We came back to, to West Berlin and it was like a completely different city. The city that we'd left was no longer there, you know, it was teeming with like East Germans in the, like you said, in the stonewashed jeans and, you know, trainers and stuff that they, because they, you know, East Germans, when they came to the West, they were able to, they were given a gift always as 100 German marks. And with this 100 German marks, the first thing that they did was they went off and bought a pair of trainers, a pair of jeans and a Pink Floyd album. Yeah. But that, uh, what, what I was getting at is that that period, which I think was really, fascinating the 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 initial part obviously you know you've got these two societies which are a little bit disparate trying to mix and that the way that they came together was always was actually through music and in the dead zone between east and west wasn't mm -hmm. it so well, yeah yeah you, had, you you know we had a, we had a small techno scene emerging in berlin since like you know merging out of the acid house scene from the late 80s we had one club the ufo club and that was it really you know um these kids in the east had listened to the radio stations of west berlin they're listening to monica dietl and barry graves and they're thinking like this this techno scene that's happening in the west sounds amazing it's great you know they can understand the music because it's no difficult to understand lyrics so it's just music 
So they were fascinated by what was happening in West Berlin. And when the wall came down, they all came over here to the West. They discovered there wasn't only one club. So in, in the deficit of not, you know, like desperation, wanting to have a party and wanting to celebrate, the, you know, their, their newfound freedom, they just utilized these derelict, decrepit buildings, which were lining the death strip between the, the, the two walls, you know, between the west part of the wall and the east part of the wall. There was this kind of no man's land. And in this no man's land, there were a couple of buildings and stuff. So they used those as the, as the locations because no one was going to go in there and just get a generator, a couple of decks, you know, some 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 uh, smoke machine and a stroboscope, and there you go. You know, and that was what it. It just like the, it doesn't really matter then whether you came from East Berlin or whether you came from if you were wearing, wearing stonewash jeans. It didn't matter. You know, we. I never thought that. You know that that these these kids from the east they had no idea what our Western world was like. And to be honest, most of the people in the West knew didn't know anything what their life was like in the east either. You know, I was really privileged. I knew but what it was like in the East and in the West. So I felt really privileged that I had this insight and I knew all these places and I could speak to these East German kids on, in, their own, on their own, in their own language, really, because East German was different to West, you know, and it was like I knew different things and I, and I felt really kind of like that I had this, I brought these two things together somehow. So it was really, I was really thrilled, you know, that, that finally this moment had happened, you know, that we'd, we'd, that we were victorious in bringing this uh, freedom, if you like, between the two East Germans and West Germans, these two nations, and they were all dancing on the dance floor together. And it didn't really matter whether you came from Cottbus or whether you came from Cologne, you know, you were like, everybody was the same. And that, and that feeling, that, that feeling of like unity and energy that was generated was like unparalleled really, you know, that for the first time, I think people felt free, you know, they felt this feeling of freedom, which we've not had since then at all. You know, it was that moment in time. I think we're very, very lucky. The people who experienced that are very, very lucky to have tasted what freedom really felt like dancing on ecstasy in a, in, in a, in a club, you know, like back then, 1990s, early 1990s. You know, it was a very, very special moment. And, and for, you know, the, 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 the attitudes between like, you know, what didn't really matter where you came from, that, that fell away. It was only amongst the kind of like nine to five workers who kind of like looked down upon the East Germans because they were like, just because they were from East Germany. But at the same time, they were fascinated to go to East Germany and explore all these things that they never knew existed before because they'd never had taken the trouble to find out. Um, and it was it was interesting the the difference in 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 like the way Berlin kind of portrayed um, the division between East and West and the way West Germany and East Germany looked at each other as well. You know, it took a long time for that division to kind of like mend itself. Yeah. When I was there, when I saw that, when when people were sort of uh, detrimental to yeah. East Berliners to how they looked initially and what it may do to their, their society. It was odd coming from another society at that point to see that. And interestingly, I think that was also this sort of idealism of, of who you think you are and who you think other people are. I remember that well, my best friend comes from Jena, which is in the East. Mm -hmm. And we obviously met uh, later after the um, uh, the wall came down and he told me that when he was a teenager when the wall came down his parents were given 400 
um, Marx, because there were four in the family, and they went off to uh, to drive to Munich, stop at a petrol station. And his dream as a teenager was to drink Coca-Cola. And he drank one and threw up. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's sort of symbolic of the the dream in your head and the reality. And I think there were there were visions in the head and realities on both sides, which were which were false realities. But what was beautiful about this period, and I was often in Berlin at that time, were were the expressions of freedom and also sexual freedom. And yeah. uh, and as a gay man, uh, in being you know visiting Berlin during that period, um, there was a, a, a feeling of total equivalence <laughs> uh, because all, you yeah. were there because of the music. You were there to have fun. You were there to enjoy yourself, and and th that was the difference. And I think that was a very beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you know, everyone you met, you know, had that same that feeling really as well. You know, and I think that that all my friends who kind of had kind of looked down upon the fact that I went to East Germany and East Berlin, Eastern Europe, whatever, they suddenly realized what they've been missing. Yeah. And I think that was then, then, then the, the thrill, the thrill that, you know, of, of this new kind of blood really, if you like, you know, it was like, it was like for both sides, it's for both sides, you know. The West, the West Germans could go to the East and discover the East, and the and the East Germans could come and discover the West, and then we realised like just how similar we are, you know. They they they're not aliens, you know. They're just like us, and and you find your like-minded kind of people, and like you said, you know, like this this uh, liber liberating feeling that we had was so unique. It was so it was such a I th I've always felt that Berlin's always been that open-minded city anyway. It's always been open-minded in compar comparison to Manchester, where we had one transvestite, you know, Fufu Lamar, yeah? Um, that was it, uh, really, you know? And, and, and in Berlin, it was like, like I said, the first day I got here, the first person that I met was a transvestite. It was like, it was, like, it was brilliant, you know? It was like, it was really, it was a real eye-opener. I felt so relaxed and so, so, so at ease being here. Uh, and I've always have done, and I think that that was one of the things which kind of like kept me here. You know, not just not just not just the music or you know the city itself, but like the the attitude of this kind of like everybody seemed to be in the same boat. You know, they'd all been persecuted almost as kids. You know, bullied as kids, and you know you're different. You like weird music. You dress like you know that this and that, and you know what are you wearing those shoes? You know, as a kid, it was a, it was a nightmare growing up. You know, I couldn't, I tried to be different. And the, the, the minute you step out of normality, you get your head kicked in. You know, I was like, I don't want to live in a society like that. And I come to Berlin and it was, and it was the society that I'd always dreamt of it. You know, it was this desert island in the middle of East Germany that, that provided this feeling of like equality that, you know, I wish the rest of the world could experience really. We wouldn't be in this fucking stupid situation that we're in now if it was like that, you know. Yeah, I want to come to that because, I mean, you've had an incredible career and in a sense, I'm missing a lot of that out, but I want to come to your your music at the moment and relate it to the current situation because I read a post on, I think it was probably on Facebook or, or Instagram from you the other day, which was uh, also sort of uh, mentioning the situation of, you know, Russia illegally invading uh, Ukraine and what's going on there and relating it 
to the 80s, relating it to the, the, uh, the Cold War, we're back at this moment of uh, possible nuclear annihilation. And we're back at this yeah. horrendous period of, of history, notwithstanding the poor Ukrainians who are going through hell at the moment. I w want to sort of talk about uh, that in terms of how you feel there may be a societal change and a change culturally uh, that may actually step up again. Well, that's what my post was basically about, you know, like we've had this kind of retro feeling for the past couple of years, you know, like it's like back to the 80s with all these old synthesizers appearing as new, you know, people kind of like wanting to take, take elements from that period and stuff. And I was thinking, oh, it's, you know, we're entering into the roaring 2020s. Um, so maybe the music scene will change its 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 image really because Berlin's been known for the past thirty years as being techno mecca. You know, if everybody comes here, the, the the techno underground scene is massive. So it's not really the underground scene anymore. You know, underground means like twenty people, doesn't it? You know, not twenty thousand. You know, and when you look at like the the, the way the, the love parade kind of attracted, you know, almost two million people in the nineties. You know, it was like uh, early two thousands. You know, it was it was kind of like that was like that was the 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 focus of the musical kind of movement of techno here in Berlin kind of manifested itself. But 30 years later, you know, we've got, we've had all techno in various different disguises, kind of like it re inventing itself, but it still remained the same. And I was thinking there's obviously groups of kids out there playing to their mates who cannot identify with this old 30s, 30 year old kind of music, you know, that they, they, they can, obviously because people consume music differently these days through Spotify, they can listen to all kinds of things, but it's not just one thing anymore. You know, it's not just this one trendy thing anymore. I think techno was the last real kind of trend of the 20th century. And after that, we've just had a regurgitation of, of the 20th century in some form. And so we're back to the eighties now, right? So we're not only back to the 80s. You can't really feel the 80s if it's just about Abba on the telly watching them doing Mamma Mia or whatever. It's like, you know, you, know, you want to have that 70s anyway, it? but it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like this kind of idea of like this, what the 80s are supposed to represent. No, the 80s represented also threat and fear of nuclear holocaust and, you know, the, the Cold War, East versus West and all that tension, political tension which was ratcheted up, especially here in Berlin, was, you know, now we're back to that, to that point too. We've not only gone full circle musically and fashionably, we've also gone full circle politically now. And so, but this time it's a bit more, it's a bit more dangerous because there's a lot more, more players. There's a lot more people in the, in the game and there's a lot more surveillance and a lot more danger you know we've come to george orwell's 1984 almost in 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 the sense you know everything that he's he kind of wrote in his book has kind of like started to manifest itself in reality here you know in in, in the world which is very frightening and i've always been fascinated by this book ever since being a child when i read it first time it's it's, it's you know it's like, it's like I, I always imagined in 1984 that would be like that but in 1984 we weren't like that but we are now 
you know, all these moving fronts and alliances and loyalties and, and, and businesses and things like this. And everything's kind of like, you know, with fake news and all this kind of stuff, you know, we've, we've, we've come to exactly that point. It's as if we've, we've not really learned anything at all. And, and, the, and the music obviously plays a huge role in that and, and the way politics affects us all, whether we want to want it to, to do so or not, you know, because I'm not going to read the news, you know, but you read a Facebook post, um, it affects you, it affects you somehow. And, and the developments outside of your control, they, they affect you. And, and surely someone making music, that affects them too, you know, and, and they want to express their inner fears or thoughts through the music. And it doesn't necessarily have to be techno because let's face it, techno was always a, an instrumental kind of soundtrack really. Uh, it, only in the later years that you started to get like the vocal elements. And that's only because kids could now speak English because back in 1990, nobody spoke English from the Eastern European countries. Now today, English is, a, is the internet language. So everybody speaks some kind of English, even if it's just to, to order something on Amazon. So, so, so there's a voice now. People have a voice and they're able to speak and they're able to express their opinions and their, and their thoughts in a vocal manner, not just in a musical manner. And so, so, so now it's time maybe for younger people to kind of um, embrace that moment and express themselves musically uh, with, with, with in, in, in a vocal term as well. And that, and, and so, so, so they take, they take the elements of techno and they take the elements of, of rock and dark wave and Gothic and whatever, and they put it all together and make something different. And I think that this, this roaring new sound of the 2020s, after all this business with, with Ukraine has finished, you know, hopefully soon, um, you know, we'll, we'll see like in the 1920s after the first world war, we'll see this kind of desire to, to, to express oneself. And that's what we're going to have. I mean, one thing that really fascinated me when you you mentioned your um, new album, bef not in, during this conversation we're having here, but in, in an a email, and that how the songs have changed their meaning because of what's happened. Could you tell me about this this new album and tell me about how you now view those songs in the current situation? Um, the new album I've made together with Lithuanian singer called Alanas Chosnow. Um, and I made this with my partner, studio partner, Michelle Adam. And we'd made an album last year, or 2020 it was, called Children of Nature, which touched on kind of more um, environmental kind of themes. But it also, also touched on, the, on the, the, the theme of living in an authoritarian society. You know, because my, my travels have taken me with, with B-Movie, for example, my documentary film about Berlin, it's taken me all around the world, like China and all these kind of Belarus and places like this. And so, so being there and seeing how these kids are growing in their, in their society uh, kind of infiltrated me a little bit and, and I, I wanted to express that in my music. So I'm trying to, in Children of Nature, trying to portray that Said, what would happen if, if they come and get you one day? What are you going to do? You know, and with this new album, I wanted to take it a little, a little step further because I still felt that we needed to kind of like make this point. Obviously, I don't want it to be kind of blatant and in your face like things are these days. I wanted it to, to be a little bit more subliminal. So as we wrote these songs, wrote them in the context of being like love, love songs, if you like, you know, between two people, whatever, or 
you know, one of the songs is literally about, you know, the, the, the division between Ukraine, Belarus and Russia being one time partners and now they're enemies. It was, it was a bit of the George Orwell thing coming through a little bit as well. So it was like now, so, but, but in this, in the context of context of being, being two, two lovers splitting up, you know, or two partners splitting up or whatever. And, and, and this feeling of hatred and why, you know, why, you know, like and, and hatred not just for yourself and not for your situation, but your hatred for the world. You know, to you know, you you're angry at everybody. You know, uh, just things like this. And I, and I tried to put all these kind of elements in the songs. Um, you know, in the meantime, we kind of had coronavirus as well, which kind of also was part of the song. You know, like like we're just waiting for the de- for the for the end to come, kind of thing. Um, and 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 obviously with this with this like latest conflict between ukraine and russia that has also put the songs into a totally different kind of uh, context really you know i mean we'd already planned the, the the album before and before all this happened even before, even by end of last year you know the, the idea for the cover was to show you know the, a human being trapped in the a cage global cage of the world you know with only one way out and we have to decide what that one way out is going to be. You know, is it going to be total annihilation, you know, thermonuclear war, or is it going to be something else? Is it going to be freedom? Is it going to be overthrowing your tyrants and, you know, co- coming back to reality? And, let, you know, what do we want in life? You know, we want to have happiness and peacefulness and, you know, fun and laugh. You know, there's always time, there's time always in our lives to be miserable, you know. But the main goal is to have a nice time, you know. And who are these people, like Vladimir Putin, to come along, one person to disrupt that? You know, like how are we? How can we allow that? And how can we allow that in the future to happen? We can't allow that to happen in the future. So now is the time to decide. Now is the time to decide. Do what kind of future do you want to live in? And that's everybody's should make make this decision because it's like they're giving us this last one last chance almost and it's a last chance to you know if we if we allow people like like putin to be in power you know then we can only expect things like this to happen if we allow that and i think that you know all these autocratic leaders of the world you know when we were writing this album it was more about you know, Donald, the fear of Donald Trump getting a second time in office, you know, it's like, would that, how would that would affect us all, you know? Um, as it happened, he, he didn't, he didn't, but we still ended up being in the same situation. And so it's like, like, where do we want to go in the 2020s? Do we want it to be another, another 10 years war between in, in Europe? Do we want to watch that? Do we want to watch that? every day on the news and become immune to the horror and the misery that we see. Do we really want that? I don't, you know, and I'm sure you don't either. And, and I'm sure that people hearing this podcast, they probably don't want that either. You know, I mean, music is a, is a common language. It's a common expression and it's something which connects us all. It's something which has shown throughout your life to have an immense power through what you've achieved in your life and connected two societies from east to west which connected later in the late 90s it connected manchester 
to Berlin and it's connected you to uh, lots of different countries around the world. As you mentioned, B-Movie, which is a fascinating uh, documentary uh, uh, about Berlin, which has taken you all around the world. Uh, all I can say at the end is that I love the music on your new album. I love the fact that you've always okay. been in the center of things and um, you've always, uh, through your uh, works, and I term it in the wider sense, because not just through music, but through what you've done, you've really uh, pushed for a, a better world. So Mark Reader, thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you very much. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.